This morning's Bible reading comes from the Gospel of Mark and begins at the beginning of the chapter. Um, it can be found on the Bibles which are in front of you on the seats and is on page 1022-1022 if you like to follow in there. <coughs> Jesus before Pilate. Very early in the morning, the chief priests with the elders, the teachers of the law, and the whole Sanhedrin reached a decision. They bound Jesus, led him away, and turned him over to Pilate. Are you the king of the Jews? asked Pilate. Yes, it is as you say, Jesus replied. The chief priests accused him of many things. So again, Pilate asked him, Aren't you going to answer? See how many things they are accusing you of. But Jesus still made no reply, and Pilate was amazed. Now, it was the custom at the feast to release a prisoner whom the people requested. A man called Barabbas was in prison with the insurrectionists who had committed murder in the uprising. The crowd came up and asked Pilate to do for them what he usually did. Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews, asked Pilate, knowing it was out of envy that the chief priests had handed Jesus over to him. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have Pilate release Barabbas instead. What shall I do then with the one you call the king of the Jews, Pilate asked them. Crucify him, they shouted. Why, what crime has he committed, asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder, crucify him. Wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. He had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. The soldiers led Jesus away into the palace, that is the Praetorium, and called together the whole company of soldiers. They put a purple robe on him then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on him. And then they began to call out to him, Hail, King of the Jews! <coughs> again and again they struck him on the head with a staff and spat on him. Falling on their knees, they paid homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they took off the purple robe and put his own clothes on him. Then they led him out to crucify him. This is the word of the Lord. Well, I do have that passage before us at the start of what the church calls Holy Week. It's particularly, I think, important for us in the week leading up to the events of the first Easter to be familiar with those events. And if you have time during the week, why not read one of the different accounts by the different evangelists on four of the days that you have, so that you're familiar with it as we reflect upon it, um, not only this morning, but Maundy Thursday evening and Good Friday morning and Easter Sunday. Uh, let me pray. Heavenly Father, at the beginning of Holy Week, may we have clearly in our minds the events and particularly their significance. May we understand them. And in our understanding, may we more deeply appreciate them. 
and above all, may we appropriate their benefits for our eternal life. Amen. Well, I want to just address two questions that arise from the first 15 verses of Mark 15. The first is, was it a fair trial? And secondly, is it just Jesus who is on trial here? So was it a fair trial? Let's just refresh our minds as to what has happened. Um, This is early on, very early on the Friday morning, and earlier in the night, between Thursday and Friday, um, Judas had led the chief priests and their entourage and the temple guards to where Jesus and his followers would have encamped on the Mount of Olives. Being Passover, there would have been thousands and thousands and thousands of people, and they would have camped out on the Mount of Olives, which is a massive area. And unless you knew precisely where Jesus and his entourage normally kind of camped down, you'd never find him. So that's why they needed Judas, and they had him, and they got Jesus, and they carried him off. And they took him off around past probably the northern side, of the, uh, the Temple Mount to, to the high priest's house where he was dragged before this irregular court. But now it's daybreak and the chief priest can summon the entire ruling council, the Sanhedrin, and try and legitimate what they had done illegitimately. And having decided his guilt on the charge of blasphemy, claiming to be uh, God, they have, uh, they have to dream up some other charge that would concern the Roman authorities. The Romans wouldn't have been particularly concerned about somebody with delusions of divine grandeur who was otherwise being really no trouble. But they had to think of something that the Romans would find troublesome and would do something about. So they took him to Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor of Judea between 26 and 36 AD. His official residence and where his main garrison was, was in Caesarea Maritima, which is on the coast of the Mediterranean. It's just above what is Tel Aviv today. It's an enormous place and a very, very impressive uh, site. And that's where he was based. And in 1961, a stone tablet was discovered, which is uh, dated from the first century, which actually has his name on it. That was his base. But at the times of the festivals, which were the times when massive numbers of Jews would gather together for such an event as Passover as then, he would, with some of his garrison, go up to Jerusalem. Otherwise, Jerusalem would normally have quite a small garrison in the Antonia Fortress. He would go up there and he would not stay in the barracks with the boys. He would stay in a a palace which Herod the Great had constructed about 40 years previous and is now um, really to the west of the Temple Mount and slightly to the south of it. But he would have had a nice place to stay. It's otherwise called by Mark the Praetorium. And that's where he held court. And that's where he tried Jesus. 
So what did the chief priest dream up? We can see, really, from the way in which Pilate questions Jesus. He says to him, are you the king of the Jews? You know, that implies that somehow or other that they'd suggested to Pilate that he was some kind of insurrectionist, that he was a pretender to the Jewish throne, that he was a rival to the then King Herod Antipas. Now, political instability was something that would naturally concern the Romans. I mean, Pilate could have quite a cushy time in Caesarea Maritima, as long as everything was quiet. But should things become troublesome and word get back to Rome that there's bother, well, then life for Pilate is going to be significantly difficult. You see, all the Romans wanted was their Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. Maintain the political status quo with the minimum number of troops and their profitability of their empire is established and money flows back to the coffers of the senators and the ruling families in Rome and they are happy. But insurrections dent profitability means you don't get your return on your investment. They don't like that at all, which is why they were incredibly severe to anyone who would disturb the peace. They were brutal, very, very brutal. And they would have executed anybody who is liable to ruin their Pax Romana. Well, Jesus' reply is effectively to admit it. Yes, it is as you say. Now, Pilate seems to think Jesus has some kind of death wish as Jesus appears not to defend himself against this serious accusation. Aren't you going to answer? Pilate says to him, verse 4. But Jesus made no reply, and Pilate is amazed. Now, Pilate is no fool. He knows Jesus is no insurrectionist. It's obvious. I mean, he would have been incredibly familiar with trying all sorts of cases. And with experience comes insight, almost intuitive insight. And he knows jolly well this bloke is not an insurrectionist. He'll have heard about him. I mean, Jesus created quite a stir. But he wouldn't have heard anything that would have got him kind of alarmed to think he was about to kind of lead some kind of army and overthrow the establishment. In fact, Pilate is so shrewd, he knows, verse 10, that it's out of envy that the chief priests have brought him. See, Jesus attracted the love and the support of thousands of people, the Sadducees in particular, who are the chief, one of whom is the chief priest, and they are the sort of aristocratic priestly families. They are the religious establishment. They are not at all popular with the people. And Pilate can see that um, 
Jesus is a threat to their religious establishment position. He sees it in those sort of terms. And in 14, Pilate says, what crime has he committed? You know, he can't see that it is a significant political crime that he's committed. He sees them as religious rivals. He sees one as popular with the people and the other trying to fight a very rearguard action to maintain their privileged position. Now Jesus doesn't attempt to defend himself. He's committed to the Father's will. He knows his sacrifice will open up the way of salvation. He allows this travesty of justice against himself to happen. Pilate, of course, doesn't know anything about that. Externally, Pilate is the most powerful man in that part of the world. And yet internally, he vacillates. He knows Jesus is innocent. He, verse 15, wants, though, to satisfy the crowds who had been stirred up by the Sadducees, by the high priests, into some kind of renter mob where reason goes out the window as they start ranting. Now he tries to do the right thing, Pilate, by letting, he wants to let Jesus go. But for the wrong reasons. He wants the Jews to choose to let him go. I think he forgets that in his palace he's only got a small number of people doing a lot of shouting. He hasn't got all the people outside who were with Jesus just a few days before and who welcomed him with hosannas as he entered Jerusalem. He's only got a small number who may well have been bribed by the high priests to kind of be so bellicose and so kind of um, strong in their condemnation of Jesus. You see, Pilate had introduced a tradition uh, one in where he could kind of um, suck up to the, the Jews every time they had a significant festival. He'd introduced the, uh, the custom of allowing the people to choose a condemned man to be freed at a time such as Passover. And he hopes that because Jesus is so very popular, that they would choose him. But the crowd bade Jesus' blood. They wanted Barabbas to be set free. They chose Barabbas. The Sadducees would be out of their mind to choose Barabbas. Barabbas was an insurrectionist. He was a zealot. They hated the Sadducees. They would have loved to have toppled them and had what they would consider to be a kind of proper Jewish religion um, in operation but so perverse are the people who are trying to preserve their position that they're quite happy to let one insurrectionist, one zealot go free if it meant the destruction of the Nazarene. 
So perversely, the crowd choose Barabbas. And they demand the crucifixion of Jesus. Now, Pilate's moral compromise here has gone hopelessly wrong. And yet, even here, we see the picture of the innocent dying for the guilty. Jesus, the innocent, is condemned and killed. In consequence, Barabbas, the murderer, is set free and lives. It's a travesty of justice. Well, the second question is, who exactly is on trial here? Well, obviously, Jesus is. Jesus had got, uh, the, the Jews had got the Romans to condemn him for insurrection, um, because then he could be crucified. But consider how Jesus behaves. He's obviously innocent. I mean, where are his rebel forces? Is there any record that he carried weapons himself? He knows that any fair court would acquit him. And yet Jesus allows himself to encounter this travesty of justice. He allows this injustice to take place. Why? So that his father's plan of salvation can be implemented. He knows from the Old Testament prophecies that he must be despised. He must be rejected by men. He must suffer, die and rose again to to secure the salvation of human beings. It's worth contrasting Jesus, the second Adam, with the first Adam. The first Adam in the Garden of Eden was guilty, and he wriggled. He blamed Eve, who blamed the serpent. And yet here we have the second Adam in Pilate's court, who was innocent, And yet he didn't pass the buck. He accepted the injustice. The just suffered for the unjust. But Jesus is not the only person on trial. Pontius Pilate is too. Pilate is the most powerful man in that part of the world. But in his courtroom, there is a battle going on inside his head. A battle between his conscience, which says Jesus was innocent, and the crowd, which chanted for a death sentence. Principle dictated Jesus' liberation. But pragmatism demanded his elimination. The right thing for Pilate to do would be to acquit Jesus. But the easiest thing for him to do was have him executed, be done with him, go back to Caesarea Maritima 
enjoy the sunshine and the sea. If Pilate had been a strong man, he'd have done what the facts of the case demanded and his conscience dictated. He should have let him go. But Pilate was a weak man. He gave way to the crowd. He consented to his execution. But we too are on trial. As we read these accounts, we are, to, we are asked to pass our verdict on Jesus. And we too battle between our consciences and the crowd. We know what verdict the facts of the case should bring in. But we know the pressure of our peer groups. There was once a girl who was in personal turmoil, not sure whether she could give every area of her life to Christ. Her vicar showed her a passage, Acts 10:14, where Peter says, "No, Lord." And the vicar said to her, "You can say no, and you can say Lord, but you cannot say no, Lord." Which is it to be? He said, I'm going to leave you on your own to think and pray for a while. And you want, I want you to cross out one of those two words. And that's where I think I'll leave it this morning. Let's have a time of prayer, perhaps a time of extended prayer and reflection. Let's pray. Let us first of all just reflect on Jesus' obedience to death. He knew that he could so easily enable himself to be acquitted. And yet he didn't. That required resolve. He was doing it for a reason. And the reason he was allowing it to happen was because he knew that it was the only way that God could forgive human sin and rebellion against him. And that would be that if God himself takes the punishment on himself to satisfy himself, which is what we see perfectly happening when Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, voluntarily takes our place and suffers the punishment for our sins so that the justice of God can be satisfied. <coughs> and as we reflect on it, and as we make sure that we have embraced it as the only means of salvation then out of gratitude 
we have to reflect on what it means to be one of his followers. Followers who follow him on his terms and not our terms. And not having claimed salvation on his terms to then distort discipleship by inventing our own terms. <clears throat>